Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast, where suffering is optional. Hi, this is Reverend Kusla coming to you from downtown Los Angeles, from the International Buddhist Meditation Center in the heart of Koreatown. Well, it's a sunny but cool day in Los Angeles. We're less than two weeks away from Christmas 2006, and what you're about to hear today is Class 1, Part 2 of an extension class I taught at Loyola Marymount University between September 28th and October 19th, 2006. The class was called Integrating Buddhist Practices into Everyday Life. So again, what you're about to hear is Class 1, Part 2 of Integrating Buddhist Practices into Everyday Life. Okay, so we're going to digress just a few moments and talk about the difference between enlightenment and nirvana. And I've got a a small article I wrote about this very subject because it really um, caused me a lot of uh, discomfort. It seemed to be the same thing sometimes, and yet other times it seemed to be totally different. The words are almost interchangeable depending on who's writing the article or the essay or the book. And yet the feeling I had was that they were different. And I, and I really couldn't figure out what the difference was. So this is what I came up with. Enlightenment is the wisdom of emptiness. Nirvana is the end of suffering. The ideal and the goal of Mahayana Buddhism the reform movement, the later school of Buddhism, is enlightenment. They postpone their nirvana until all sentient beings have achieved it. Then the bodhisattvas accept their nirvana. So I said to myself, but, okay, so there is, it is different. In the early Buddhist tradition, the Buddha was a bodhisattva 550 times at least, according to the Jataka tale, before he was reborn as Siddhartha Gotama and achieved his nirvana at the age of 35 in his last lifetime. When the Mahayana reform movement arose in the world, they said, we're not going to do what the Buddha said. We're going to do what the Buddha did. We're all going to become Buddhas. We're not going to become Arahants. An arhant is someone who achieves nirvana in the early Buddhist school of Theravada. They achieve nirvana because they follow the Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha. They are not called a Buddha because you can only have one Buddha at a time on any world system or planet. So if you want to become a Buddha, you're going to have to become a Buddha on Mars or someplace else because we already have our Buddha and his teachings are still valid and still work. When the last person who knows the teachings of this Buddha dies, the next Buddha is already lined up to come down and be reborn and his name is Maitreya Buddha. He will be the 29th Buddha according to early Buddhism, Theravada tradition. So there were 27 Buddhas before Siddhartha. He's the 28th. And, and 
Maitreya will be the 29th. The Bodhisattvas, though, you see, the Bodhisattvas looked at the early Buddhist school as being very selfish. They said, all those people want to do is end their own suffering. And we want to end the suffering of everybody. We want our teachings to be accessible to everybody. And in the early Buddhist school, it was you actually gave donations to the monks to gain merit to be reborn in the heaven realm. You didn't do a whole lot of meditation or a whole lot of ascetic practices. You were there to support the monks who could teach you and train you. But if you've got a wife and kids and a job or two, it's very difficult to have a strong religious practice. It takes a lot of time and effort and commitment. So the Bodhisattva, the Mahayana tradition arose. Now, what is the wisdom of emptiness? What does that mean? It seems to me it goes like this. We do our meditation practice, and when we get to certain stages in our meditation practice, we have the experience of being interconnected and interdependent with all phenomena. We have the experience, the transcendent experience, of leaving self behind and now reconnecting with all things, which is sort of cool, hard to understand, you know. Uh, back in the 60s, I know Ram Dass and a few other uh, psychedelic pioneers found their chemical enlightenment through LSD. They reconnected with all things for a short period of time. The problem seems to me with drugs is you really can't integrate those experiences very well, and they just simply fade away. But the meditation experience and the precept practice and, and your spiritual momentum as it starts to build up will allow you to reconnect with the world around you. When that happens, you realize in a very personal way, if there is one person in this world who is hungry, there is a part of you that is hungry. If there's one person in this world who is homeless, there is literally a part of you now that is homeless. And if there's one person in this world who is dying, there is a part of you that's in the process of dying as well. And that's when the great (laughs) compassion arises. And you are no longer able to live your life the way you used to live it. Now your life becomes a life of service. Because you are them and they are you. And your suffering now is the suffering of others. Your joy and happiness is the joy and happiness of others as well. So it's a pretty transformative experience to become enlightened. You're never, ever going to be the same, and you're always going to have something to do, because there's always people suffering. So, for me, enlightenment is the wisdom of emptiness, empty of independent existence, direct experience of that, and nirvana is the end of suffering and the end of all future rebirths. (coughs) Okay, are we clear on that? Sort of? Okay. Now, we've gone through right speech, right action. Now we have right livelihood. And the Buddha encouraged everyone who wasn't a monk or a nun 
to find an employment that would allow them to reduce suffering and still be able to make a living. <coughs> Do you want to get some water? I have some. Okay. So, what does that mean? Uh, I was giving a talk at USC to some uh, business majors, and they said to me, is it okay for a Buddhist to make a lot of money? And I said, oh, yeah, think how much more money you can give away. So the problem is not making money. The problem is owning money. Do you own it or do you use it? Or does it use you? Can we find a way to make money that reduces suffering in the world? That would be right livelihood for a Buddhist. And, you know, some of the, you know, um, almost any of the service industry jobs would reduce suffering at some level, you know, hopefully. And you could be maybe, you know, a pharmacist, psychiatrist, psychologist, you know. You might not want to make atom bombs. You might not even want to join the military. That may not be right livelihood, though a lot of Buddhists do join the military. Um, you you probably don't want to be the president. That never turns out to be right livelihood eventually. There are always some decisions you have to make. They're going to create suffering in the world, you know. So it's, it's an interesting dilemma for a Buddhist when they decide to plot their career. What do I want to be? What do I want to do? If I want to make a lot of money, can I make a lot of money and not increase suffering? And, of course, the answer is yes, you can. Uh, the hard part is figuring out how to do it. That's the personal discipline category of the Eightfold Path. Right speech, right action, right livelihood. The second category of the Eightfold Path has three path factors. They are right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. Right effort is not about going to Gold's Gym or 24-hour fitness. Right effort has to do with the mind. To prevent unskillful thoughts from arising, to abandon unskillful thoughts that have already arisen, to develop skillful thoughts that have not yet arisen, to maintain skillful thoughts that are already there. That is right effort. To prevent, abandon, develop, maintain. Now, the, the secret is, what the heck is a skillful thought? And what the heck is an unskillful thought? A skillful thought is a thought that's based in love, generosity, compassion, and wisdom. An unskillful thought is a thought that's based in lust, greed, hatred, and delusion. Now, I'll give you a personal example of an unskillful thought. Just the other day, I was in Vaughn's supermarket, and I found myself on the bakery aisle. And there in front of me was a rather large stack of Entenmann's chocolate cakes, the one with the cream filling. And I thought to myself, I'm buying two, one for tonight and one for tomorrow. And then I reflected on that thought and realized it was based in greed, because if it had been based in generosity, I'd be buying two, one for me and one for you. So right effort is simply being aware of your thought process and then putting those thoughts into different categories. Skillful, unskillful, skillful, unskillful, skillful, unskillful. Two kinds of Buddhist meditation. 
The Buddha was taught how to do one kind of meditation. He rediscovered the other kind of meditation, which allowed him to achieve nirvana. The two kinds of Buddhist meditation are samatha meditation and vipassana meditation, tranquility meditation and insight meditation. The Buddha was taught how to do samatha meditation. He was taught how to do tranquility meditation by the yogis of India. This is, um, can be looked at in an overly simplified way as going into deeper and deeper states of one-pointedness, concentration on one thing. In samatha meditation, there are 40, four zero, different kinds of meditation objects. <laughs> insight meditation, there are four kinds of mindfulness meditation or insight meditation. So we have 40 and we have four. I feel that samatha meditation will take you to enlightenment and insight meditation will take you to nirvana. The Buddha became enlightened before he achieved nirvana. So he, he, he did both. And he used both these techniques. The problem with samatha meditation is it doesn't allow you to have a permanent solution to suffering. It's a temporary solution. As long as you're sitting on the cushion meditating, you cannot suffer. You can go into deep states of bliss and pleasure and happiness and eventually total equanimity about the whole world. Choiceless awareness. Neither good nor bad. Neither high nor small. But as soon as you get up off the cushion, walk out the door, get on the 405 freeway, all your hatred, anger, and rage comes flying back into you. And all that meditation practice is just a memory. And so he saw that as being a problem. And he rediscovered insight meditation. As I said before, some forms of Buddhism consider him to be the 28th Buddha. So he rediscovered the kinds of meditation that the Buddhas before him had done, which was insight meditation, vipassana meditation. Now let me talk about each of those kinds of meditation and give you a, a sort of an intellectual model of how that works. Samatha meditation. Imagine you're sitting on the ground on a nice soft or firm meditation cushion. You're in a zendo. There's a big Buddha statue. It's half lit over there. Candles are burning. There's fruit on the altar and the incense is glowing. Pleasant, pleasant atmosphere. And you're sitting there cross-legged and your back is straight and your head is bent forward just a smidge. You're looking about 30 inches in front of you. And your object of meditation is going to be the sensation of breath. And you take your your mind and you sort of bring it to the tip of your nose and you become aware of the sensation of breath going out and coming in and going out and coming in. And now you're going to do breath counting because you've realized before when you just simply try to watch your breath that it gets so subtle sometimes you lose track of it. Or it's hard to watch your breath if you're not counting because you want to think about other things or plan about things or regret things. So you start one, inhale, two, inhale, three, one to ten, ten to one, one to ten, ten to one. When you do that for a while, you go into the first jhana, the first level of concentration, and that first level of concentration has five aspects, has applied thought, sustained thought, happiness, bliss, and equanimity. Now let me 
explain to you what those are. Applied thought and sustained thought. You take your mind, you apply it to the sensation of breath, and you hold it there. That's applied thought and sustained thought. When you do that, when you start to become concentrated on the sensation of breath, there's a sense of happiness that arises in your mind. There's a sense of bliss and pleasure that arises in your body. And there's also the beginning of equanimity, of balance, of choiceless awareness. It just starts to appear. If you do this well and do it long enough, you automatically slip into the second jhana, The second jhana has three characteristics. It has a greater sense of happiness, a greater sense of bliss and pleasure, and more equanimity. What we've left behind now is applied thought and sustained thought. Our mind, at this point, simply rests on the object of meditation all by itself, without any intention or will on our part. That's called the second jhana. You'll notice as we get more advanced, we have fewer and fewer characteristics. Buddhism is a path of renunciation. We are giving things up that prevent us from being perfect. In Buddhism, we feel we are already perfect. But our lust, our greed, our hatred, and our delusion prevent us from experiencing or manifesting that perfection. We don't need any more love in our life or generosity or compassion or wisdom. It's already there. It's already in place. So even though Buddhists talk a lot about suffering and this unsatisfactory world of ours, we are firmly convinced that we are already perfect. That potential of achieving that perfection is called Buddha nature in my mind. That each one of us has potential of achieving our perfection. It's a very positive message, I've always felt, even though it's sort of hidden under the suffering. We're in the second jhana. We've got a lot of happiness going on in our head. We have a lot of bliss and pleasure going in our body. And we have a certain sense of equanimity that's starting to take root. And in order to go to the next level, we have to give something up because Buddhism is a path of renunciation. Yes? Can I explain to you? The equanimity, the notion of equanimity. Okay. Equanimity would be having no preferences. Equanimity would be choiceless awareness. Equanimity would not be being a Democrat or a Republican. Maybe not even an independent. Equanimity is really in the middle. It's a balance, but it's, it's your mind in the middle without choosing sides. You know, and then to look at the world and not see a beautiful tree or an ugly tree, but simply see a tree. That's equanimity. No, or preferences or choices. Yeah, you eat the ice cream; it's not good or bad. It's a it's a rather interesting place for us to go to because most of us 
wouldn't want to go there, you know, given our druthers. Well, I mean, why would anybody not want to taste the ice cream or see the beauty in the tree? What possible good could that be, you know? And I'm getting there. I'll tell you why that's a good thing. So here we are. We've got this sense of happiness in our mind. We have this sense of bliss and pleasure in our body. The hair on the back of our neck may be standing on end. We have these little tingly sensations. Uh, and it feels good. But we want to go further. We want to find out what it's like to have equanimity, perfect balance of mind. So we've decided to give something up, and we give up our bliss and pleasure. Now, this is a big deal. We're not going to give it up forever. We're just going to give it up for like 10 minutes in the meditation practice. We're just going to see what it's like to try to give up our bliss and our pleasure. And now we have to figure out how to do that, and that's like another story. But if we can figure out how to do it, when we give up our bliss and pleasure, which is a physical sensation, we are also giving up our pain. Now, if I said to you, do you want to give up your pain? You say, yeah, I don't want to have pain. But then I'd say, but you have to give up bliss and pleasure too. And you say, well... Maybe I'll put up with the pain because the pleasure is so good. You know? So uh, there's this sort of like um, process that the meditator needs to go through to see the benefits of giving up pleasure so they can give up pain, which is part of the equanimity thing that's about to happen. So if the meditator is able to figure out why it would be a good thing to do it, even just for 15 minutes, and figure out how to do it, then they would go into the next jhana. And now there's only two characteristics left. Happiness in the mind and equanimity. And now to get to the last jhana, we have to give something up. And we're going to give up our happiness. Just for 15 minutes. And if we're able to give up our happiness, we are also giving up our sadness. We will never be sad again. But we'll never be happy again. I don't know. It's a pretty big price to pay not to be sad. But the meditator says, well, I'm going to try it. It's not forever. I'm just going to see what it's like. They figured out that it's a good thing to do. They figured out how to do it. And now they go into the last stage of this meditation and they simply have perfect balance of mind. They have no pain. They have no pleasure physically. Emotionally, they have no happiness and they have no sadness. They are perceiving the world exactly the way it is without looking through tinted lenses or having choices and preferences. They are looking at everything exactly the way it is. That is a liberating factor. You find that there is nothing at all to be attached to or repulsed by. There's no aversion or attraction in equanimity. You can be in New Orleans during Katrina and have perfect balance. And think of how much good and service you could do to all those people who were suffering if you weren't suffering and saw clearly what needed to be done next. And then you were able to do that.
not everybody wants to go there. Okay, but when you are there, sitting quietly in the zendo, the world is exactly the way it is supposed to be. You have no future. You have no past. You have the perfection of the present moment experience of your life occurring. But the problem, as the Buddha saw it, was you have to leave eventually. You have to give off the cushion and take a meal or go to the bathroom or leave because it's time to clean up the place. And that equanimity falls away. And now you have choices and preferences and pain and pleasure and happiness and sadness and it all comes back. But you've had the direct experience of what it might be like to be a Buddha or to be an enlightened person, to have that perfect balance of mind. So that's the first kind of meditation that the Buddha did, and he was taught how to do that. The second kind of meditation is insight meditation. And as I said before, there were four kinds of insight meditation. There's mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of sensations, mindfulness of the mind, and mindfulness of mental objects. So I'm going to talk about mindfulness of sensations right now. The Buddha said we have three kinds of feelings. We have good feelings, we have bad feelings, and we have neutral feelings. When we are doing mindfulness of sensations, we are mindfully searching our body and our consciousness for pleasant and unpleasant. So a sore knee may be an unpleasant sensation and you would recognize that as being unpleasant and simply note it as being unpleasant. Leave it behind and search out another sensation. Now you might find it a pleasant one. So you name it as a pleasant one and you leave that behind and you search for another sensation. You might do this for 10, 20, 30, 45 minutes. Finding sensations, noting pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Generally speaking, if it's a neutral sensation, you won't become aware of it. We're only aware of the good and the bad, the pleasant and the unpleasant. After you've recognized many sensations, then you go into a deep state of reflection, searching out the three aspects of Buddhist wisdom that are in each and every one of those sensations. The three aspects of Buddhist wisdom you're looking for are impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self. Impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self. Anicca, dukkha, anatta. Pali, canonical language of early Buddhism. So now we're going to look at the first sensation we found. It was the sore knees. And you say to yourself, was this sensation impermanent? And you go, yeah, it was impermanent. Because it didn't seem to exist with the same intensity very long. Sometimes it got worse. Sometimes it got better. Sometimes it almost seemed to go away. And then when it come back, it always wanted to get my attention. And if it was stayed the same, it wouldn't get my attention. So it needed to have this sort of vibratory nature to keep my attention. So eventually I would stretch my leg out and get rid of this unpleasant sensation. Okay. And then you'd sort of look at your life and you'd say, well, is there anything in my life that's unchanging? Or is everything in my life always in a constant state of flux? And with careful reflection, 
you may come to the conclusion that, yes, in fact, everything in your life is in a constant state of flux and change. Nothing stays the same very long. Okay. Did that lead to unsatisfactoriness? Was that sensation unsatisfactory? Well, the painful ones were definitely unsatisfactory right off the bat. The sore knee, the stiff back, the agitated mind. Yes, those were definitely unsatisfactory. But along the way, I noticed as I was meditating, I did have some pleasant sensations. And I liked those. But those pleasant sensations, because they are also impermanent, changed. And when they changed, I was disappointed. Because I didn't want them to change. And I'd have to come to the conclusion, because of impermanence and change, all those sensations were ultimately unsatisfactory, even the good ones. And then I could look at my life, and I could reflect on my life, and say, is my life ultimately unsatisfactory because of this change and flux? That the good stuff doesn't last long enough, and the bad stuff lasts too long? But the bad stuff eventually changes into good, and the good stuff always changes into bad? And I would come to the conclusion that, yes, that's how my life works. So the second aspect of Buddhist wisdom now becomes a personal truth, that my life is ultimately unsatisfactory. And one of the main reasons it's unsatisfactory is because of this change and impermanence that I became aware of in a very personal way as I was meditating and watching my body and watching my consciousness. So we've got two down and one to go. And the, the third one is the toughest one of all. Did any of these sensations have an independent existence? Did any of these sensations have, if you will, a soul? Did they have their own original essence? And as I reflected on the sensations that I found in my knee, in my back, in my consciousness, I'd have to say that probably those sensations were there because of certain conditions creating them. They did not exist independently. And when I changed the conditions, when I straightened my leg, they changed too. So they didn't really exist independently. They existed because other things were happening. And now this is the scary part, because now you're going to look at yourself and you're going to say, do I exist independently? Do I have an essence? Do I have an originality that's all mine and doesn't change? That's unique? That's unconditional? The Buddha would say, do you have a soul? In 2006, we would say, do you have a self? And where does that self reside? And what does it look like? And how much does it weigh? And is that thing we call self independent? Well, one of my favorite books was and is Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And in that book, Robert Pierzig has a Superhawk 400 And his buddy has a BMW. And his buddy always felt that the BMW had more quality because it had German engineering. Mm -hmm. 
I imagined this might have happened if I had been writing that book. That I would take both the Superhawk 400 and the BMW to a rather large parking lot and ask each one of them to take it apart into their 10,000 pieces. And now as the BMW was over here in 10,000 pieces and the Honda was over here in 10,000 pieces, pieces, give each of them a magnifying glass and say to them, find me the quality of your motorcycle. In which part or piece does it exist? And then I imagine them going from part to part and piece to piece looking for the quality of their motorcycle and coming up empty because the quality does not exist in any of the pieces or the parts. The quality seems to materialize when all the pieces and parts come together and create one. And when our parts and pieces come together and create one, we seem to have self. We seem to have quality. We seem to be somebody. But you take all the parts and pieces and lay them out, like at the coroner's office. Nobody's home. Nobody's there. No quality there. Just parts and pieces. So with careful reflection, the Buddhist would say, everything is in a constant state of flux and change. Because of that, everything is ultimately unsatisfactory, and there's no one home. Wow. So if there's no one home, who's suffering? (laughs) Well, that takes us to that place of transcendence when you realize there's no one to suffer. And you are forever free because there's no one talking or speaking or thinking. Everything that occurs is simply a process that continues because of conditions. And if we take enough conditions away, that process ceases to exist. If you take water away, we're gone in six, seven, eight days. You take food away, 30, 40 days, we're gone. You take air away, five or six minutes, we're gone. We are conditional creatures. We are not in control. If we were in control, according to Buddhism, we wouldn't get sick, we wouldn't get old, we wouldn't die. But we're not. This is a liberating insight. It's not a depressing insight. This is a liberating insight because you realize there is nothing or no one to hold and grasp and cling to. Concepts or realities, they're all empty. And there's nothing to be upset about or repulsed about. That's empty too. So here you are in this wonderful state of balance and equanimity that's permanent, not simply dependent on the zendo or the meditation technique. But now, because you have worked all the way through this, you are now liberated. You have now achieved nirvana. Your karma has ended, which is another interesting concept about nirvana. When you achieve nirvana, you no longer have karma. Has anybody seen My Name is Earl? That TV show is all about karma. He saw Carson Daly. Carson Daly had a great life because he understood karma. So Earl wanted to find out about karma. I've watched a couple episodes there. Just just (laughs) wonderful. A lot of fun.
when you achieve nirvana, according to Buddhism, you end your karma. What is being reborn in Buddhism is not a soul, is not a self, it is karmic energy. That's why Buddhists call it rebirth and not reincarnation. Reincarnation requires a soul, rebirth requires karmic energy. Question? Yeah, that's a, okay, good. Karma is uh, often misunderstood. What is karma? Karma is everything we think. Karma is everything we say. Karma is everything we do. The consequences of our thinking, speaking, and acting are called vipaka in Pali, which is the canonical language of early Buddhism. So we have cause and consequence. We have karma vipaka. Now, I heard some Buddhist scholars say about the tsunami, it was their karma. And I, my mouth dropped, my ears tingled for a week. I couldn't believe anybody would say that. Do you, those people suffered because that was their karma? That tsunami happened because of karma? In early Buddhism, a, sh a small digression here. In early Buddhism, we have something called the five niyamas. The five reasons why stuff happens. It never happens because of one thing in Buddhism. Buddhism is not monotheistic. It's non-theistic. There's nothing in Buddhism that ends in one. It's always many connected. Did anybody think that Buddhism, that Buddhists were atheists? Before we go to the next thing? Okay. Did anybody think Buddhists believe in God? You, okay, two thought that. Okay. Anybody think Buddhists don't care? <laughs> yeah, okay. That's the answer. <laughs> yeah, it, actually, um, the, the Buddha never denied that there was God. It, it, God just can't fix suffering, that's all. And so the Buddhist path is really not about God at all. It's about how to end suffering. And um, so I have met a lot of Buddhists who, who do believe in God, but never because of Buddhism. Right, because God's irrelevant to Buddhism, right? It is. Yeah. But, but God's important to a lot of people. So they find out about God through Catholicism or you know, Christianity or Islam, and so they believe in God. I've met some Buddhists that don't believe in God. But that's not in Buddhism either. You can't find that in Buddhism at all. So that's just their stuff they're working through. Does anybody know where a person who doesn't believe in God goes after they die? They go to the cryogenics lab waiting for a cure. Okay. And then, and then you've got the Buddhists. And the Buddhists are saying, okay, I don't know. I don't know about God. I don't know. I don't know... If there is one or if there isn't one, it doesn't seem to matter. This path seems to work without God. And so some people say, well, can I bring God to Buddhism? Well, you can use some of the techniques of Buddhism, but you can't really you know, bring God to Buddhism and have it be your religion. Because you're always going to be sort of like one step over here with all the other people saying, well, no, we don't care. And you're going to say, but it matters to me. So I would encourage, I don't encourage people to become Buddhists, you know. It's difficult. And, and, and you're not going to be able to believe in a lot of stuff. 
you know, like how did the world start? You know, the Buddha didn't talk about that either. So some Buddhists think it was the Big Bang and evolution. Some Buddhists think God started the world. I, myself, like the flying spaghetti monster theory. There is a website that will tell you all about that as being the reason for why we're here. You can even get your t-shirt online. Flying spaghetti monster. So I can be jovial and light and, and a little cavalier about these really big topics because they don't burden me. They don't. I have come to a place where it's okay to believe in God. It's okay not to believe in God. It's okay to not know. Yes? Why is the end of suffering so important? Because everyone suffers. When we finally end suffering, we will also end Buddhism. We are actually trying to end Buddhism, ultimately, by ending human suffering. I think we get a long ways to go. So, you know, again, again, I think uh, is difficult on this beautiful campus with trees and gardens and wonderful buildings to appreciate how many people right now in this world are suffering. Who don't have enough to eat, who have diseases, who could be cured if they had the medicine, but they don't have the medicine because they don't get the money. Political regimes creating all sorts of torture and death and suffering all over the world. You know, most of the world is pretty unsatisfactory. We're lucky. We're, you know, our, our news is pretty much, you know, keeping us secluded like the Buddha's parents kept him secluded from the realities of the world. It's, when I go online and go to BBC or something, I'm going, wow. So that's what they said, huh? Okay. Very cool. There was a, a four-part series this past Sunday on PBS called The Conquistadors. Talked about the conquistadors going to various South American, Latin American countries and looking for gold and stuff. Man, oh, they, they were they were mean and they had tough lives and they all died and they ate like spiders because they couldn't find food and they built rafts to go across Gulf of Mexico and the storms killed them and some made it and and you just go, geez, that's a tough life, you know? That is a tough life. And most people, you know, had that. Now we're getting pretty good. We, we got medicine, if we're lucky enough to have health care. There are more people in 2006 that don't have health care than had it in 2005. Not a good sign. If we have money, if we have employment or savings account, it could be okay. If we have a place to live, you know, a house, roof, clothing. It's, but, if, but if we lack some of those things, it, life can start to be pretty difficult and we can start to suffer and we can start to feel like a victim and we can start to say, why me? And then why did that person have to die at 16 and why is that person alive and healthy at 80 and they've done caused so much harm to people around them and things like that. So Buddhism came about when we didn't have real good medical care they had urine and herbs and spices that they mixed together. Myself, personally, I think I might rather go for the disease. But And, and you know, um, they, they didn't live very long. You know, most people were illiterate. 
it was tough. So I'm sure there were some people suffering back then and still a lot of people suffering today. When I go to the hospitals and people are dying, they hear the message of Buddhism right away. When I go to the prisons and juvenile halls, they hear the message of Buddhism right away. I don't need to talk about the first truth. I, that They already know that. But, and, I, and don't take this in the wrong way, when I go to Paulus Verdes, you know, or some nicer parts of L.A. and go to the high schools and talk about suffering, it's a hard sell. You know, suffering is, hey, we lost the game on Friday. You know, or my girlfriend wants me to get a new car. But we're talking, I'm talking about the, the, the big suffering that happens, the big deal, the, 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 the sickness, the age, and the death. When we go from bifocals to trifocals, huh? you know, when our limitations are every day increasing our boundaries are becoming more apparent. So many things we used to be able to do and can't do anymore. How do we come to a place of acceptance with that? How do we age well and die well? You know? And so Buddhism is one of the ways human beings can age well and die well. It's not to eliminate suffering. It has to a lot more to do with your mindset. Accepting that suffering. Well, okay. Well, but what is suffering? Suffering is when you want things to be different than they are. So Buddhism is not designed to end your pain. No. You're going to have pain because you got a body. But you don't have to suffer in the pain. You can just have pain. And, and now this is hard to understand, especially if you have pain and it's pain. But pain is just a really, really, really strong sensation. And we've labeled it pain. It's a problem. But if we have a sort of a pleasant, really, really, really strong sensation, we go, ah, that's great. So this sort of pleasure and pain thing is just really strong sensations that our mind has labeled and categorized, and now we have a problem. (laughs) So Buddhism is designed to get rid of the problem, but not the pain. It It can't keep you from dying or getting old. But it can allow you to come to a place of acceptance with that process. It doesn't have to be a problem. And I have seen one of the guys I met, he's in his 80s now. He's the guy that wrote that book, World Religions, Houston Smith. And, and he, he, he gave a talk at UCLA. I had a chance to tell him he was the reason I became a Buddhist. And his eyes just smiled. Because he's not a Buddhist. His wife's not a Buddhist. But he liked the idea that his book had a great meaning to me. This man in his 80s, who just had a hip replacement, was so joyful and happy. He had something, he had that sparkle. You know, and when I see people that are really, really old, sometimes they don't have the sparkle, it's gone. But he still had his sparkle. And I am sure his religious tradition is a very big part of that sparkle. And so. For me, going from being a D-minus Lutheran to a B-plus agnostic to now a Buddhist, you know, monk or clergy, I can appreciate the power of religion slash spirituality and how it can be our raft, our salvation, our refuge in this world that's constantly either trying to kill us or make us feel uncomfortable. You know? 
And when I look at the Wizard of Oz, you know what I see? The lions and tigers and bears just waiting to get me. Dorothy's okay, but those lions and tigers and bears, they're all out there. When I go out to the forest, I'm nervous. I don't know if I can exist very long out there. You know, poison ivy, I don't know what it looks like. I could be walking on it or sitting in it. Don't know. Poison snakes, spiders, don't have a clue what they look like, how to avoid them. You know, bobcats, cougars, you know, man, they're just like, so I'm going out there, I'm thinking Mother Nature, huh? Yeah, Mother Nature is a tough one to live in, you know, that if you don't have a clue on how to do it, you're a goner. And when I watch these PBS shows about taking groups of people back to times past and putting them on a ranch or in a, in a house in the 1900s. Those people worked hard. They didn't get much time off. They worked just to survive. If they didn't have enough food in the cellar when the winter came, they died. They were always working. They were always... And so that's... I, I look at life, I'm going, yeah, that's it. So in my life, when it's pleasant, when I'm happy, when things are going okay, I'm amazed. I'm going, oh, man, this is so cool. I know it's going to change, though. I know it's only a matter of time it's going to change. But, hey, this is great. This hamburger tastes so good. Yes, I do eat meat. And, and so I think Buddhism and its emphasis and focus on the end of suffering is really important to the world. And as long as we have human beings in the world, according to Buddhism, they will suffer. And this is one way to end suffering that's better than Prozac and all the other stuff, too. Did that, was that a good answer? Sort of? Okay. There is a lot to it. Now, I can stand up here for a couple hours and just sort of give you the basics, but there's a lot to this. Because right? Because what? Four? Do we have four? Four truths? No, four classes. We have four classes. Okay. Okay. Yeah, you know, um, and and people... Six? Pardon? Six? Yeah, four? Maybe we should have six. Maybe next time we can have six. Because this takes a long time to sort of feel comfortable with and, and to sort of understand. It's so contrary to what our culture tells us. You know, they tell us, well, if you have enough stuff, you'll be happy. And Buddhism is saying, gosh, if you have too much stuff, you're going to be attached and you're going to be unhappy forever. And not only that, you're going to have to get a storage locker and buy some insurance, too. <laughs> so it's just sort of a different way of looking at the world. It's, it's, it's dealing with simplicity and clarity. It's waking up. The word Buddha literally means one who is awake. He woke up. Did anybody see The Matrix? One of my favorite movies, Matrix. Okay, wasn't that cool? Did you like The Matrix? I, when, when Neo woke up, for me that was just, he was so difficult. They had to unplug him and then he's all, and he didn't know, and he's, you know, and, and then he almost died too. Remember when he, when, he, when he just sort of went down on the ground and threw up because it was just too much, too much stuff happening? It's really hard to wake up. And, and I catch myself all the time sleepwalking through my life. You know, thinking about this or criticizing that or evaluating this. And, and, and it actually has nothing at all to do with my personal experience at that very moment. And when I see people on their cell phones walking around, they're asleep. They don't have a clue. They are listening to voices in their head. And they think they're real. You know, these are electronic 
sounds. But they're voices, and they're hearing the voices, and those voices are more important than walking across the street or driving that car. And that scares me because I'm on a motorcycle. You know? And then you have the iPods. We were talking about that earlier. Plug in, you know? Man, where does that take you? It doesn't take you to the present moment. So Buddhism is designed to get you back to the present moment, to allow you to see that time is not real. That time is something we make up. So we can have a past and a future. And we need a past and a future so we can all have the story of our life. And if you have a story with no past or future, no beginning or end, it's a very boring story. So time gives us the beginning and the end. And when we sit and meditate for a while, 15, 20 minutes in the morning, what you're doing is you're letting that pencil drop. That pencil that's been writing the story of your life for your whole life drops to the ground your past and your future dissolve into the present moment experience of your life. And you come to this place where you have seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting and touching and thinking. One meditator said, lose your mind and come to your senses. Come back to your sense doors where those stories are being created. The information coming through our sense stores, moment by moment, is the information we use to write the story of our life. So if we can put the pencil down and see what kind of information is coming through those sense stores, it's not very inspiring. We have sight, which is like light and dark and, and shapes, colors, movement. And then we sort of like zap it with our intellect and turn it into something, an apple or a chair or a car. Yeah. So this meditation is a way of really coming back to that, to our original whoever we are. What is it that we are? And I know from 28 to 30, I was a bit depressed because I really felt I was getting old. I know it sounds so odd because I'm 57 now. So it's like that was, it seems like such a long time ago. But I can remember Logan's run. In Logan's Run, they all had this little crystal in the palm of their hand. And when they turned 30, it started to blink. And they came and got you. <laughs> and then you ended up missing. <laughs> and so with all that kind of stuff in my head, between 28 and 30, I was just going, I was having a difficult time. I was smoking two packs a day, you know. Gave up smoking, joined the gym, worked out three times a week. Started to explore what it meant to have a body. I never really thought about my body in any real way, other than, you know, I washed it and combed it and clothed it and, and it sort of took care of itself. But now, as I'm in the gym and I'm working out, I see, hey, if I eat this and exercise this way, I can change the way it looks. I can have more strength and stamina. I might even look like Arnold Schwarzenegger one day. Wouldn't that be cool? I remember when I was a young man, I always wanted to look like Steve Reeves. Anybody remember Steve Reeves? Yes. Now, he's not associated to George Reeves. He's not a brother. But Steve Reeves was the first Hercules. He made the Sandal and Sword movies. And he was Mr. Olympia in like 1956. I can remember being a teenager. And he would just stand there and I'd just marvel at his body. And I wanted a body just like that. But I wasn't, wasn't willing to do the work. So by going to the gym and finding out about my body, I started to realize that something was in that body called a mind or consciousness. And then I became aware 
of meditation and meditation allowed me to do the same thing with my consciousness that the gym allowed me to do with my body. <coughs> it allowed me to exercise it and explore it and see it from a unique perspective. And for a long time, this consciousness was simply who I was. And then after years of meditation, I was able to see that's not who I am at all. It goes on all about its work, all by itself. The thoughts come and the thoughts go. I can't even turn it off because when I sleep, it's still going on. And I like dreaming. I have good dreams. I don't want to give that up too. But the thing never stops. You know, even in meditation, my mind still thinks about things. There's still discursive thought. And the meditator would look at that as simply being a radio on in the back of the room. Yeah, we can still concentrate and read and do our stuff with the radio on. So the mind's just sort of doing this. But then it becomes just sort of what the mind does. It's not you anymore. And when you start to look at your life in that way, it starts to allow you to have a bit more freedom, you know, with what you do and how you think. And uh, it causes you sometimes to find new friends. <laughs> And family members are sometimes uh, a bit stressed because you don't seem to be like you used to be, you know. So, but that's okay, you know. Yes. Um, I have a sort of a question. Oh, it's getting late. Yeah. Um, you know, when you asked if anybody, if we knew anything about the universe, yeah. I said no. Okay. And I've always been kind of curious. So. And I, so when I read this, I thought, oh, this, you know, here's the opportunity, you know. And I think what really caught my eye was the very last, probably six words. And it's not if you know it, maybe you know what it says, and find peace in everyday life. Yes. And I guess for me personally, I don't know if I'm looking for a new religion or something like that, but I guess that really struck me. Good. Because personally in my life, there's just so much going on all the time. And I, I finding peace seems to be very, very difficult. Yes. So... I guess I'm kind of hoping that some of this will come together because I'm really, my head's spinning right now, to be honest with you. <laughs> you a lot know, of stuff, isn't it? A lot of stuff. And, um, and it's in my head all the time. <laughs> it's a lot of stuff. I'm hoping that. that yes. I know we are classes we, that it's, you know, it's like a, a miracle to, do, to get anything together in four classes. But, but we're heading in that direction. And we're going to be making it more personal. I'll be making it more personal and talk about my ups and downs in this practice and, and, and suggest different kinds of practice for you as well. And, and the idea is, is not to take on a new religion. The idea is to sort of um, find that place in us that's always peace. It's all, and it's there. It's just covered up right now with chaos. You know, yeah. So good. I'm, I'm glad that's the reason you decided to sign up for the class, because that's the reason most people are Buddhists. Mm. That's good. Well, we've come to the end of the first class. I hope I haven't uh, oh, burdened you with too much. I hope I've stimulated you. And uh, I'm, I'm able to email everybody that signed up in just like one shot. So I'll be sending you the web page I'm going to put together with some articles maybe that I've written about the different aspects. And you can you know, click on those and read those. And then some free e-books and stuff like that. 
And again, it takes a while. I, I've been doing it since 1980. So I'm just now starting to get the hang of it. You know? Well, you might, though, you see. You might. Yes. Um, there are many, many groups that you can meditate with. Um, rather than me suggesting, because those would be my preferences, what I would do is just uh, get the phone book or go online and visit a few places, because each one will do it differently. And the idea is to find the one that works for you. And what do you look for? You would look, actually, you just go meditation centers. Me? Meditation centers. Uh-huh. Google, do you know about Google, a search engine? Okay, Google Meditation Centers, Los Angeles. But they're all very different, aren't they? Yes, they are. Like many different kinds of meditation. Yes, they are. So, do you want me to tell you what kind of meditation to do? Mm-hmm. Is that? <laughs> or, or, or suggest a place? Yeah. Okay. Well, you have my card. If you could email me. And I'll and I'll uh, suggest a few places, but these are places that I like now, so I don't, you know. Okay. Good. Thank you. Have a good night. Drive carefully. Well, that's it. That was class one, part two of an extension class I taught at Loyola Marymount University titled Integrating Buddhist Practices into Everyday Life. We have six more podcasts to go in this series, and I'll get the next one posted uh, real soon. So hang in there. If you'd like to hear more Dharma Talks that I've given or interviews that I've done, uh, please visit dharmatalks.info. That's dharmatalks.info. If you'd like to download some free e-books on Buddhism, please visit buddhabooks.info. That's buddhabooks.info. And if you'd like to email me, my email address is kusala at urbandharma.org. Well, Iola Marymount University has invited me to teach another extension class. And the title of this class will be The Buddhist Eightfold Path, A Way to Happiness. It will start on January 11th, 2007, and end on February 8th. It'll be on Thursday evenings from 7.30 until 9.30. So if you live in the Los Angeles area and would like to take this journey with me, please visit urbandharma.org index page and scroll to the bottom, and you'll find a link to the LMU webpage extension classes. Well... Until the next podcast, until the next time, be happy, be peaceful, and most of all, be free from suffering.